Hi, this is Dennis Matalone, the stunt coordinator of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and TNG, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. When people think of Star Trek, they typically think of diplomatic relations and long, drawn-out speeches, all that kind of stuff. That's what Starfleet ultimately does. They travel around space, seek out new life and new civilizations, boldly go, yada, yada, yada. And that's usually the first thing you'll hear in the Star Wars versus Star Trek debate, is the amount of action and that kind of thing. But that debate is typically fallacious because, well, there's plenty of action in Star Trek. And if you want proof of that, well, I think today's guest is going to have it. Today, we're speaking with Dennis Madalone. Dennis has had a long career in stunts, and to call him an expert in the field would be an absolute understatement. And chances are you've seen his face time and time again on Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. Because he not only performed on those shows, but he was also the stunt coordinator. What exactly is a stunt coordinator, you say? Well, they're basically the action directors. They're in charge of the stunt team, and it's up to them to say what can and can't be done when it comes time to do any sort of action on screen, even something as simple as having a glass of water splashed in someone's face. And most importantly, make sure that whatever the stunt may be is achieved in the easiest way possible and also the safest way possible to ensure that everybody goes home and no one's taking a trip to the hospital that day. Beyond Star Trek, Dennis has fallen off tall buildings and been hit by cars for shows and films like The Greatest American Hero, Darkman, The Giver, Army of Darkness, Pulp Fiction, Castle, Without a Trace, The X-Files, and over a hundred other credited projects. And he also became mainstream for a little bit thanks to a certain music video that he made, but we're going to get onto that a little bit later on in this conversation. Don't let Dennis's nickname of Danger fool you. He is one of the nicest individuals you can ever hope to meet and shared some truly excellent stories today that I know you're going to enjoy. But before we jump into today's interview, I want to ask you if you're following us yet on social media. If you're not, you can check out Trek Untold on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we update there constantly. It's the best way to find out who this week's guest is going to be in advance, and also potentially ask them any questions when we offer that option. So that's Trek Untold, one word, no spaces, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to take a look at some of the merchandise we have there, which includes t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and all sorts of other things. We'll be releasing new designs constantly, so make sure to keep an eye there if you'd like to support this show and show off to your friends how much you like it. You can also directly support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold to become a Patreon. But most important of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or any other audio forms, make sure to leave a review and a rating and drop some stars if you can. And if you're watching the YouTube version, please don't forget to subscribe to Nerd News Today, the channel that you're watching this on, and give the video a thumbs up. And of course, while you're at it, feel free to comment there and let me know what you think of this week's guest. Subscribing, leaving ratings, leaving comments are all some of the most important things you can do to help this podcast continue to grow and ensure that more people find out about this show. And if you're already following us or supporting us on Patreon or bought some merch, a big, big thank you for doing that or offering your support in whatever way that you can. Thank you for the help. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and I'm very grateful that you've chosen to listen to this one today. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D printed Star Trek inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. 
Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up today's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, all the way in lovely California, we've got stunt coordinator, stuntman, stunt professional. You've seen him in tons of things, but chances are you might not have seen the face because, well, that's the stunt business. Today, we're talking with Dennis Madalone. Dennis, how are you today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much. It's great to be on the show. We love having stunt people here on the show, stunt performers especially. You know, you guys really don't get the justice that you deserve, the attention you deserve for what you guys put yourselves through. So, you know, first off, before we even start things off, just thank you for your commitment to stunt performing in this industry. Oh, man, thanks. It, it was in me ever since I was born. I was a kid in New Jersey, and I was diving off my bed when I was two years old, and I haven't stopped doing that. So it's just in my blood. So let's take a jump back into your past since you brought it up to you. And I'd like to ask you the first question we give all of our guests on Trek Untold. And that is, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Gosh, when I was a little kid in New Jersey and I used to watch, you know, William Shatner and used to watch the fight scenes and the phaser hits and and uh, how they did their fights back then with a little bit of a judo style and and the big, you know, double hand hit. And believe it or not, years later, after I made it as a stuntman, I ended up using that hit quite often in the Klingon battles, you know, because it stuck in my head that that looks pretty uh, alienish, you know, and brutal and and still prehistoric, but yet something you can use in the future still, you know. So the backhand hit seems like it works, you know, in BC and or in the future, you know. So Dennis. Tell us a little bit about your past now. Who were your parents? Where did you grow up? And what did little Dennis want to be when he grew up? Gosh, my parents are amazing. My mom and dad, we were just, you know, typical family in New Jersey, South Plainfield. And uh, I remember when uh, I was like probably two or three years old, I started throwing myself on the floor and rolling down the steps. And my parents didn't know what what that meant you know and neither did i i just knew that when i did it i got all the attention like uh, wow it looks like you're getting hurt but you're not so i was doing stunts all the time jumping off the roof and by the time i was 10 years old i just was so had all this great stunt action energy and not knowing what a stunt guy was and uh one night i was watching james cagney uh he was one of my favorite stars to watch on tv and my dad came downstairs like 10 o'clock at night and he goes, you like James Cagney, don't you? I go, oh, yeah. And my dad said, do you want to be like James Cagney? Or do you want to you know, be like James Cagney? And I said, no, but I want to be the guys he's beating up. And my dad said, what? I said, I want to be those guys that he's beating up in this movie. And I forgot about that. And then years later... You know, my senior year, I broke the school record in pole vaulting on the track team. And and suddenly everyone kept saying, man, you're going to Hollywood to be a stuntman. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And out of nowhere, like two weeks after high school, I'm seeing people in the street. They're going, when you going? When you going? And it was like, oh, my gosh, I told everyone I'm going. And I left two days later, you know, hitched a ride with some friends, got dropped off in California. Within 24 hours, I met this great stunt coordinator called Paul Stater, who is the original stunt coordinator of the original uh, Poseidon Adventure and Tower Inferno and all these blockbuster Irwin Allen movies. And, uh, and he was training people in this small gym in Santa Monica. 
And I started training with them. And in less than a year and a half, I was running shows at Universal Studios. So my career exploded. So we should mention, you know, talking about Jimmy Cagney, he's inspired a lot of other actors who are involved in Star Trek, like Armin Shearman. Plenty of other folks have been big fans of James Cagney. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking just of uh, one of the movies I first saw his work in was Blood on the Sun. Uh, which is where he actually showed off his judo skills. And I know you also have a background in wrestling uh, and a few other athletics. Um, so to basically, if, you know, for you to learn some combat skills and to learn things like falling, you know, what was that like for you to go from doing high school athletics to now taking bumps and all sorts of those crazy things? Yeah, it was just a natural when I showed up in the gym in Santa Monica with Paul Stater and all the young kids training. It was my wrestling ability and my pole bowling in the air and uh, football taking all the hits and tackling. That's kind of was magical it was like i caught on to everything in the gym quick you know except for everything is fake fake fights fake punches uh but luckily i was being trained by paul stater who's a great fight guy and in this business when you enter a set for the first time you better be a good fight guy because if you're not they're gonna remember that you can't take a punch or throw a punch so the one thing paul did with his kids me and everyone, he made us great fight people. So when we finally came to a set, we were ready to eat the ground, fly over a table, take a big punch and land on our back. And once you do something like that, I always knew that if I got one job, I could turn that into two and then four and, you know, just keep selling out and eating the ground and, and, you know, making friends and, you know, and that's kind of how it is in life, you know, just perform and be a good person and good things happen and things explode, you know? So we're talking now 1970s in Hollywood and things are, you know, today, 2020, very different how stunts are set up, how they're put together. Uh, but for you breaking into the in- industry back then, can you kind of paint a picture of what the scene was like? Back in the, gosh, I was like a teenager and uh, man, it was, it was good. It was like, I went, I first started working at Universal Studios and uh, gosh, the lot was loaded with TV shows galore, you know, Galactica, um, Battlestar Galactica and uh, Buck Rogers and Quincy and Kojak and just TV shows everywhere. So when I, my career exploded at Universal, to me, that was like my high school, you know, those were my high school years of from freshman to senior. And so I always think of Universal as my graduating class of all the people I met at Universal in my first year became my friends still today. It was like whoever I met during that one year explosion of my career, uh, producers, directors, actors, my stunt buddies, we're all still together. They became the pack, you know, the cool pack. And so the one thing I found out on the journey of whatever set you go to, uh, it's fun to work and perform and, and be appreciated and put a piece of crazy art on film, you know, crashing and people loving it. But the real journey is finding some friends that day, uh, friends that are going to be your friends for the rest of your life. And so that's kind of what I look forward to always, you know, even today or tomorrow, will I find a new friend out there and, you know, always be kind and giving, you know, good things happen and you find friends that are going to be your buddies forever. Now, for folks who are actually watching this podcast today on YouTube, you guys will notice that we've got a Greatest American Hero t-shirt on Dennis today. And uh, for folks who don't know, there it is. And Dennis was a double for William Cat in that show. uh, And you did some crazy stunts. So let's just talk a little bit about uh, Greatest American Hero, how you got hooked up on that show and just some some memories you have from it. Oh, my gosh. I remember I was on the Jersey Shore. We were on strike 1980 SAG 
our union. And so I was off for a month. So I rented a beach house at the Jersey Shore and hung out with my whole family. It was great. And Stephen J. Cannell and Alex Beaton uh, mailed me a script, The Greatest American Hero. And I'm on the beach reading this script, which I've never, ever done again. You know, it was just, and I'm reading and I'm going, oh my gosh, this guy can't fly. And he's crashing everywhere. I said, they better hire an actor that looks like me because I'm going to double this guy. I want to double this guy. And because I want to do all these crazy stunts. It was like, gosh. And it wasn't supposed to be athletic looking. It was all clumsy and it was like perfect. So the strike was over. I went back and we started prepping the pilot. And I'm sitting with Alex Beaton, one of the main producers with Stephen J. Cannell, who my dear friends. The actor walks by, William Cat walks by the office down the hallway. And Alex Beaton said, that's the actor, William Cat. And he had blonde, curly hair. He was like the opposite of me. Curly and was long, curly. And I looked at my producer, Alex. I said, are we going to put a long brown hair wig on him so I so he can we can look alike? And my producer said, get real. You're going to bleach your hair. You're going to curl it. And you're going to double him. And I, we all laughed. So I ran in the hallway and I yelled to William Cat. I said, hey, I'm Dennis Madelon. I'm your stunt coordinator. And the first thing he said is, my stunt double is Buddy Joe Hooker, who's a great stunt guy, who I idolize. And I started walking away and I, I said, uh, not anymore, buddy. I'm doubling you. And he laughed. And uh, I remember the first time uh, I put on the super suit, I was getting fitted in front of Stephen J. Cannell. And I looked in the mirror and Stephen was over my shoulder. And he was so proud, you know, he created this super suit and he created the logo, Stephen J. Cannell, from a, a stapler that was uh, in his office that looked like this. He gave it to the artist and he says, make the logo look like this old fashioned, oh, scissors. It was a pair of scissors. And they did. So he was so proud that he created that logo. And I remember I'm looking in the mirror and Stephen's all proud, like, wow, this is, we're going to be, this is going to be a cool show. And I remember I, I flashbacked. And I went somewhere. I was 10 years old. I'm wearing a red pair of pajamas and I'm diving off my double bunk bed into the bureaus, crashing on purpose, wearing a Batman cape. And, and suddenly I'm in the mirror wearing the red suit and a cape, black cape. And I said, oh my gosh, man, what a circle. That was like a circle for me. And, uh, and we went on and did it. And I just kept gaffing these, putting these crazy stunts together. One, the craziest one was I had to fly 20 feet in the air and hit a real billboard and with a brick wall, a real brick wall behind it. So effects set it up so it was safe. But I literally, you know, flew off a, you know, 20 foot truck with a mini tramp, flew in the frame and went like head first. Because I wanted this to look like I was flying. I wanted it to look real. And there's a method to the madness. But uh, I flew in, crashed, ate it. The next day, uh, I hear that uh, a story went around that um, Alex Beaton and Stephen J. Cannell were in dailies watching the crash. And Stephen turned toward Alex when they saw me hit the wall head first. And Stephen said to Alex, I think we just killed Dennis. And they started laughing. ABC, the studio, sent a letter to Stephen saying, what hospital is the stuntman in? We want to send him flowers. He must have got hurt. And so it was the method behind the madness, doing crazy flying gags and not getting hurt. You know, 
taking it to the limit, making things look real and cool. But, you know, method to the madness, don't get hurt. You know, we want to get home. So that was cool to do all these things. Uh, and then the series went on and I'm flying into everything and crashing. It was like a dream come true. You know, uh, one day we had nothing to crash into. I said, hey, Kenny, let's go. That's my stunt partner. I said, I'm going to crash on top of your car today. And we did. <laughs> and so it was just fun to crash land. And that, that was what, probably my favorite show ever. I still have the super suit, which is amazing. I still have the, the jersey top. I saw the highlight reel that you put up on your YouTube channel, in fact, of a lot of your stunts. And I'm trying to figure out like what you did more. Did you crash into walls more or did you get hit by cars more? I would be crashing into walls, trees, everything, you know, it was just, we always, phone booths, you know, they built me a breakaway phone booth. I flew into that. Uh, they were just great and come up with great ideas. And then I'd come up with some great ideas and, you know, but it was just, uh, and then it's only toward the end of the three year run. I'm thinking, I hope he never gets the directions because I want to keep crashing. And he never, he always crashed. So it was pretty cool. A big part of stunts is making sure that they look realistic, even though hopefully you're not actually being heard as the person performing these stunts. So I'm curious, you know, back then, what were the precautions that were taken for stunt performers to make sure they didn't get hurt for real, uh, as opposed to, let's say, what the standards are today and how stunt people are protected? Well, for my particular self on The Great American Hero, since I was coordinating it, I was my worst enemy, right? Because I, you start to push the limits. And one time I air rammed in the air 20 feet and I wanted to land on the the gas station concrete chest first and I did it. And man, I, I just stopped dead on the concrete and smashed my nose and the, and got cut bloody nose. I thought I broke my nose, but I didn't, I probably straightened it. <laughs> and, um, uh, so I was pushing my boundaries, but when I have other stunt people working for me, I don't push them. I create stunts that, that they want to do that. They're excited to do that. They're not nervous. I want to make it fun. And when I do stunts for other people, I want to be excited about doing it because whenever it doesn't feel right, it's not going to go right. And so it has to feel right. And I tell all the new young stunt people, I said, when a coordinator tells you to do a certain stunt, you should feel excited. You should feel like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to do this. If you're worried about it, don't do it. That means it's not set up right. So, and there's a little man in your heart that tells you this is right or this is wrong. So listen to, listen to the guy. And can you tell us uh, some of the other shows that you worked on in the seventies and eighties? Gosh. Uh, well, I did a TV series called the greatest American hero for the same producers, Alex and Steven, oh, excuse me, uh, 10 speed and Brown shoe. And that was with Jeff Goldblum and Ben Vereen. And we did one season. And it was great. It was car crashes and it was it was the opposite of the hero show, but it was a lot of great, cool stunts. Um, yeah, in the 70s and 80s, it was uh, I, I was doing feature films and a lot of TV shows, Quincy. And um, on one feature, I did a movie called Inside Moves, um, doubling John Savage that Dick Donner directed. And I had to do a world record high fall face off 152 feet off a ledge through a tree into a car which we did in cuts but uh that was pretty incredible back then to fall in a small airbag now they have bigger ones back then not so big and so i remember when i stepped on the ledge and i'm ready to jump uh my airbag looked you know about this big you know like like a 
a matchbook or something. And I remember looking at my guys down below. They look like little ants. And But I wasn't nervous, but I had a great team, and I couldn't wait to jump. I remember I stepped on the ledge because they said, we're rolling, we're rolling. And I stepped on the ledge, and there's like 2,000 people in L.A. looking at me, you know, and just people in the streets waiting for this crazy guy to jump. And suddenly the AD grabbed me, said, don't jump. We got a camera jam. So I stepped back out of the ledge. They're rolling and then suddenly all the people in the streets of L.A. are booing me. Boo, boo, oh, you scaredy cat. You could hear them. They're screaming. It's like, it was like, oh, my gosh, I never experienced. I got like a crowd that, that's mad at me because they thought I chickened out or something. I don't know. And so I stepped. I knew. My AD says, what do you want to do? I said, roll cameras. And they're yelling and screaming and really being wild. And I stepped on the ledge, and all I did was this. And I did this. And man, you could hear a pin drop. They respected the crazy guy, you know, that's going to jump. And within three seconds, I was off that ledge because I knew I better jump as fast as possible because these guys may start to boo me again. And uh, I remember coming off the airbag. And I remember right before the jump, when I was down below before the fall, um, I wanted to talk to Richard Donner and ask him, what style does he want? A head or a face-off suicide? And the AD says, he doesn't want to talk to you. He's, he's nervous. I said, all right, so I'm, you know, I'm going to do a, a face-off. This guy's supposed to be in the script committing suicide, so I'm going to do a face-off. And so um, I go back to the top. Now I make the big jump, and I'm screaming all the way down, and I make the turn. I hit my airbag. I'm as happy as heck. Because my high fall, that my highest one I ever did before that was 70 feet. Now I'm, I'm setting a world record face off, 152. So I'm happy to be alive. I'm hugging my guys. I'm coming off the airbag. And uh, there's Richard Donner, grabs me. He won't let go. He's crying. He's got tears in his eyes. And he won't let go. And he's just hugging me and hugging me, hugging me. And what it was, was I found out a week later the reason why Richard Donner didn't want to talk to me, he had a dream two days before that the stuntman was killed doing that high fall. So he was scared. He was scared to meet me. And so he hugged. Now I know why he hugged me so tight, you know, <laughs> because he was happy. And I said, you want, and I remember coming I, after we pulled away from each other, I said, you want me to go do another one? He goes, no way. <laughs> you know, that's a print. And, uh, so it was pretty cool to, I didn't know who Dick Donner was at the time. I was so young and, and naive of all the famous directors, but uh, that was, and I, then I found out um, two days before the fall, um, he was throwing dummies out the window of that building because he didn't want the stuntman to do it because of his dream. But the dummies looked so bad that he bowed to, you know, them hiring me. Uh, since then, he's had so many great high falls in his movies. He's, I don't think he's nervous about it anymore, you know? One of the uh, things I found out about you when I was doing some research was I found a video clip of you on YouTube in 1978 where you were being interviewed by Johnny Carson, which has got to be like an amazing experience. And not only were you interviewing Johnny Carson, but you got to literally blow up Johnny Carson. And we're not talking about, you know, today how kids talk about blowing up. We're talking about having a post go viral on social media. 
No, Dennis, you literally blew up Johnny Carson. <laughs> um, yeah, being on Johnny Carson was crazy. Uh, I knew a secretary that knew the producer of the show. And she said to me, oh, my gosh, you're doing all these crazy stunts. You're working everywhere. You should go on Johnny Carson's show. And I said, uh, get me an interview. And she got me an interview with the main producer, Fred Tattashore. And um, I sat with him and I, I said, hey, we can put Johnny Carson on an air ramp and I'll blow him up into a pad. And, uh, and if we go, oh, this sounds great. And okay, we'll ask you all these questions, how you got in SAG. And, they, and so they, this was Wednesday. I, I get a call on Wednesday afternoon saying, uh, we talked to Johnny, he doesn't want to do it. And I said, when are you seeing Mr. Carson next? They said, uh, tomorrow morning, Thursday morning, we have a meeting. I said, tell Mr. Carson, I have a three-year-old son that every morning I put him on the air ram and I shoot him 20 feet across the room into my arms. And we laugh and we giggle, and we have breakfast. We do it every morning. That's how safe this is. They tell Carson that, he tells them, book Dennis. That was it. And that they booked me within 24 hours. I was on that Friday night. Of course, I don't have a son and I would never do that to a kid. So, but I knew I could do this with Johnny and keep him safe and I wanted him to be confident. So, and that's it. I got on the show and when I, we did our interview and all that. And when we got out there, I noticed that uh, the crowd would laugh every time I would make him nervous. So I kept making up all these jokes and making him more nervous and nervous where finally he was so nervous. I said, I better blow him up now because he's really getting nervous. And, uh, but when I blew him up, it really went big. It was in all the magazines and newspapers and there was paper clips everywhere across the country saying, here's Johnny. And he was getting blown up in the air, you know? And so my career already was amazing. It just made it more recognizable, you know, to the public. And, uh, so I went on to do, all the talk shows, you know, Arsenio Hall, I did his show and jumped off the Paramount Water Tower. And, and it was just fun to promote the shows I was on and, and do crazy stunts and, and do the talk shows. So it was very cool. Also, just seeing Johnny Carson take that fall because he, he ate the floor hard there. I was, I was pretty impressed with that fall. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I've set him up with some pads, but uh, we, we also put a uh, we put the uh, cover like a floor cover over a little two inch pad. So we had, but still he really flew in the air and he really sold out. And I remember when he came off the floor and all the dust and, and debris was still flying in the air from the mortar explosion. And I remember him shaking out of it and coming out of the high he was in from being 15 feet in the air. And when he reached over and shook my hand, I had a moment with him where it was just me and him. And I saw that this may be one of the happiest moments in his life. I felt his happiness, happy to be alive, happy to have done this crazy stunt. But there was a magical moment. I have a picture of it, of us shaking hands and looking at each other. And he was so excited, you know, it was good to see that. And I remember that excitement too in his eyes. And so uh, I wasn't supposed to go back to sit down with him. He was supposed to exit me off the stage. He was so happy. He goes, come on, sit down. And we sat down and he gave me my own exit off. Oh, it's pretty cool. 
So one of the shows we like to talk about here that isn't Star Trek on Trek Untold. It's going to be a weird one, Dennis. You might be surprised, but we really like to talk about Murder, She Wrote. And I yep. know that you were in uh, you were doing stunts in the 2003 movie. I think it was called The Celtic Riddle. Uh, yep. So I'm just curious, you know, do you have any Angela Lansbury stories for us today? Oh, my gosh. You know, I got to coordinate one of those episodes and it was it was that one. Um, I performed on some of them, but I actually got to coordinate that particular episode. And it was the last movie of the week she did for Murder, She Wrote. And what an amazing soul. I'm so glad you're talking about her. She was so amazing. She reminded me of all our amazing grandmas, really. And her energy was great. She was probably 80 something. And she was so sweet and nice to me and my wife, Linda, that came on the set. She was signing autographs for people. She sent me like 12 autographs in the mail also to give to family members. So in a way, I was in awe of her amazing soul and her her iconic career she's had. And a lot of actors I, I'm not in awe of, but I was, you know, I don't normally ask actors for autographs, but I did with her. But she was so, I don't know, family. She was so sweet to everyone on the set, you know, transportation, craft service. She was just an amazing soul. That's probably why she worked for 70 years, because who everyone wants to be around her. She's such a sweet lady. It was such a privilege to actually do one of those with her. And uh, I wish they would have did more because it would have been fun to be around her even more. All right, so Dennis, let's go ahead now. Let's jump into some Star Trek discussion here. And your very first time in Star Trek was, in fact, I believe it was in Star Trek VI, uh, and you were uncredited as a Klingon. Do you remember uh, how you got that job or anything about being a Klingon? For the very first yeah. time, I should add, because you were a Klingon many other times. We'll get to that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, this was a feature film, and I was doing the TV shows. But I got a, my friend B.J. Davis was um, working, doing stunts, with the coordinator on the show and BJ says, Oh, you got to hire Dennis to do a Klingon. So they brought me in and that was a huge, like reverse ratchet gag where, uh, that you lose get gravity and you float and, and I get hit with a phaser and I, while I'm floating in gravity, I fly backwards. Well, the way they did that was they built a shaft that was like 40 feet in the air almost. And they shoot the camera from below and I'm like facing that way. And they just pull me up in the air. So when they show the camera normal, it looks like I'm flying back on, you know, floating. But I remember that day because I was in the harness so long hanging that I um, decided to loosen it, which is a mistake because uh, it ends up digging into your ribs. I remember going, I probably cracked a rib or something because I remember going home going, oh, my ribs. And they were sore for like six weeks. So whenever you put a harness on, they should be tight. But I was thick headed and I wanted to loosen it. But uh, yeah, I remember doing that stunt. That was so much fun. During your time on set, did you get to hang out with any of the principal cast or were they even there that day? Do you remember? Uh, not, no, that was a second unit we were doing, strictly doing that particular stunt. I think we spent most of the day just to pull that one off. And when you finally saw that scene in the movie, what did you think? Because that was, it is a pretty cool scene. I got to say, even looking at it back today, I remember just the special effects in addition to the stunts made that scene very memorable. Uh, what did you remember the first time you ever saw that? Yeah, it looks cool. It just it looks so real compared to everything. And, you know, here it is in the 80s or somewhere around there, late 80s. And they got, um, it looked magical. It's something that they wouldn't even spend the money on now to do because it's too expensive. So it was pretty cool that they planned that and put that together and made it look so realistic. 
Let's talk Trek TV series now, and you have a long, rich history with Trek. So uh, let's just start at the beginning, which is, I believe you were with uh, The Next Generation, and you were first cast as a stuntman, and then eventually you became a stunt coordinator. So let's just start with step one is, how did you get connected to TNG, and how did your career go from performer to coordinating the whole damn thing? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I remember I was doing some shows at the time in 1987, and I remember they were doing the pilot of the next generation, which my amazing friend, Glenn Wilder, one of the greatest stuntmen in the business, he was coordinating it. So I just got done working out. So I went down to Paramount to see Glenn. And I remember going to that stage, stage eight, and I, you can't get on the stage, right? It was like weird. And so it was like, all right, I'll wait here for Glenn. And Glenn came out, of course, and hey, Glenn, all right. And I said, you can do the series when it's picked up. He goes, nah, I'm just going to do the pilot. And uh, so I remember that's my first time was just hustling Glenn, but there really wasn't much on the pilot. So I didn't work on it, but it was good to see my buddy Glenn. And that's when I first heard about The Next Generation. Fast forward about three months, they've already, uh, I heard they're shooting a series and they already did episode one and two, and they already had two different stunt coordinators. So now there's been three with counting the pilot. Their policy is, Whoever's directing brings in the coordinator. So that was a policy. Well, guess what? Episode three, Rob Bowman is directing. An amazing friend of mine, you know, like a brother to me. Um, he's a son of Chuck Bowman, who worked with Stephen J. Cannell, Alex Beaton, still my amazing friends today. And so Rob brings me in for an interview to play this part and coordinate kind of my own little fire thing. And so I had to meet Rick Berman and David Livingston and pass the test. At the time, I had long hair. And Rick Berman, I don't know if he really liked my look for that particular part. And he goes, well, we like you, but you're here. And I go, I'll cut it. And so he really couldn't come up with another excuse. And Rob says, come on, he's going to be great. And so uh, I really had to go through an interview to get that. And uh, thanks to Rob, I got it. and. Uh, I remember doing the part with with uh, Patrick Stewart and uh, and they put a, a fire bar in front of me, you know, and that's probably why they wanted a stunt guy. And I remember doing the lines and uh, I remember just having a really good time and uh, everything went great. And then so we uh, we fast forward about two weeks later, Rob Bowman's doing another episode and they already had another coordinator after me. And so I go, all right, I'm going to, and this time they, Rob wants me to coordinate the whole show. There's guys getting shot and it was the real deal. So I brought in a whole, my, my team, Kenny Lesko, Chris Doyle, Tom Morgan, all these great stunt people that I grew up in the gym with. And we kicked butt, you know, we boom, getting blasted, thrown around, beat up. It was like perfect. And then suddenly, you know, two weeks later, I get a call from Sam Friedel. He was the unit manager, Sam Friedel. He goes, Dennis, uh, I don't really need you as a coordinator, but can you get me a guy that can double Picard riding a horse? So I set him up, did that. And then episode six came around and Sam called me and said, um, can you come in and coordinate the show? I said, yeah, uh, is Rob directing? He goes, no, it was a different director. So their policy was falling apart. It was like, well, maybe they're 
maybe they like some crazy guy from New Jersey. I don't know. And uh, so I, and they hired me again and again, and we got to like t- episode 11 or 12 and it's just me, 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 me. And I remember going to David Livingston saying, David, um, am I your coordinator? He goes, Oh, we didn't tell you this is your show. I go, all right. I go home. I hug Linda. I go, Whoa, we got a series, man. And that was my first series since the greatest American hero. And so, uh, we, we had fun. We kicked butt, made so many amazing friends at the end of the season. I went up to David. I said, um, do you want me back next season? He goes, Oh yeah, this is your show. You're back. So at the end of season two, I said, do you want me? And David said, stop it. This is your show. We're doing it seven years. And then, you know, Voyager, the pilot was coming up and I went up to David. I said, you know, I can do two shows at once. He goes, really? I said, yeah. When I was at Universal, I used to do three or four shows at once. He goes, it's your show. And that's how I ended up doing multiple Star Treks. So you ended up working on, as you mentioned, Next Generation. We just mentioned Voyager. You also coordinated for Deep Space Nine. So how do you manage to actually coordinate three different shows simultaneously? To me, that sounds just like a crazy undertaking. What's it like to be having that many shows under your belt simultaneously? Gosh, I have to tell you, in the 70s, I was at Universal and things were so hot and it was so much work. I had three or four shows at Universal I was coordinating and they were all on the same lot. And that's what makes it possible. I can run from this stage to the back lot and I have a buddy to cover just in just in case. So, uh, and so that's where I got the experience of doing, I remember I was doing, I was on seven call sheets at universal one day, seven. I was only able to do three or four, but I was able to do three or four. The rest I had to give out to my buddies. So I remember when that day was over and I was on seven, I remember, Oh my gosh, what stress that was to try to make, it was impossible. But I was so young and I wanted to do everything. I never wanted to give up. I just wanted to, I didn't want to say no. And so that experience uh, made it easy to do two Star Treks at once, not three, because they overlapped. You know, season, you know, they overlapped only a few years. Uh, It was like a five-year overlap, but it was only one, two shows at a time. So there's never three. Um, So it made it easy because the stages were 30 feet away. And only once or twice, uh, they needed me on both sets. And I would send my partner, Tom Morgan, over there, or Kenny Lesko, at the cover for 10 minutes, you know, while I'm blowing up these people there. He's beating up two people over there. So, but uh, it ended up working out really great, you know, being able to run both shows and, and not have too much conflict, you know. So filming any TV show, let alone a Star Trek show, it usually means a very long day and you've got a lot of stuff to do. You know, you've got such a small time frame to do a stunt. What do you do to get all the pieces together to make it happen in a timely fashion? You know, when I see a script, I read the action in Voyager, Deep Space Nine or, or TNG. And I visualize everything instantly. I, I see the, the vision instantly. And I feel what the director wants. I'll talk to the director and he's right on there too. He's, so my, my, my thing is when I get a script, I, I visualize everything already. And then I'll call the director first before the meeting. I'll say, um, and I'll make sure that um, what I'm feeling is what, he, what his vision is. And we're usually 99, if not 100%, like 
right on. It's like, oh my gosh, yeah, we'll get that. We'll get five Klingons and, you know, we'll get a double for the girl. And so I, so that's in sync right away, even before the first meeting, you know, eight days before you shoot the show. So it's already visualized. Um, and then I'll take my team. It's, if it's a, a big battle, you know, the day before I'll lay everything out. I'll go there for a couple hours, lay everything out. I'll ask the director to come visit afterwards. He'll look at it and he'll go, oh my gosh. And now he knows where all the dialogue goes because he sees the battle. And and so it's just getting in sync, prepping. Uh, so by the time we're on the set, we're sitting there waiting. And by the time they say, uh, bring in the stunts, we're, we can't wait. So there's no bog down. There's no nothing other than kicking butt and printing and getting everybody home and doing some cool stuff. So it's just prepping. And that's what all, all of us should always do is prep it, visualize it and, and be ahead of the game and be ready to ad lib too, you know, because maybe by the time they get to us, they can't do the, the big battle. We need to cut out, you know, 15 seconds because they lost time during the day. So I'm ready. Okay. Well, let's take out the middle part and we just continue. So you got to be able to ad lib and create and be, uh, Johnny on the spot, you know. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. This is Lee Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG, soon to get a promotion to Captain on Lower Decks. Some of you may know me from my acting career, but a lot of you probably don't know me from my charity. It's called drivebydugaters.org. Myself and a bunch of teenage boys from the block, we all jump into my SUV every Sunday, and we drive to the outskirts of town, and right from the car window, we deliver water and wipes and protein and tarps and socks to our adult homeless who truly need it right now. I don't know if you know this, but in LA, there's not one single public bathroom and not one single water fountain for anyone. And out there in Skid Row, there's 11,000 people in 20 square blocks. So our water and our wipes are really needed. We go out every week and you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook or right on the website, drivebydugaters.org and throw in any amount, even a small amount is great. For instance, you can go on the website and when you click on donate, you can see where three bucks is going and what your money is going towards or where 17 bucks is going. Sometimes it's for cheese, sometimes it's for socks, sometimes it's for just what's really needed, which is water. Any holiday donations you might be deciding where to relegate, 
please consider drivebydugeters.org. It's also completely a tax write-off, and every little tiny, tiny bit helps, anywhere from $3 to $3 million. Your money goes directly to those who need it, and we have no overhead, no agenda, pure giving, and stay tuned for the animated version of Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks, coming soon. Drivebydugeters.org, we drive by, and what we do? what do we do? We do good. Thanks so much. Hope to see you at my website. Bye. We now return to Trek Untold. So we mentioned Tom and Kenny already, uh, but can you tell us who else were some of the stunt people that you brought on to show to uh, to work with you? Oh, gosh. Irving Lewis, Mark Riccardi. These are two people that we grew up in high school and, you know, um, middle school with. So when I made it in Hollywood, they called me up, Mark Riccardi, Irving Lewis. They said, oh, we want to be stuntmen, too. They came out and they lived with me and they blasted into the business. So those are my my two best buddies from my hometown. Um, Irving Lewis was sitting with his wife in Plainfield, New Jersey, when I was on Johnny Carson. And he told his wife, that's my best friend. And she said, sure, he is. And a week later, he comes out to California with his wife because I said, come on out. And his whole life changed, you know, from, you know whatever was going on in New Jersey to being a stuntman, which he still is today. And Mark Riccardi, uh, Mark Riccardi went on to double uh, John Travolta for 10 years when John was hot doing all the features and Irving Lewis doubled Ben Vereen and uh, so many other amazing stars. Um, so uh, yeah, it was pretty cool to have it effect. I mean, one thing when I came out as a kid to New Jersey, I really affected my town. I wanted every time I got on a talk show, I would mention South Plainfield, New Jersey, the Tigers. And I'd always want to maybe the reason why I've, I've done well in this business is because I always felt like I was doing it for my mom and dad and for my home, my home, <clears throat> my, my town and everyone that I loved in New Jersey. So maybe it was easy to do because I was fighting for them too, you know, because sometimes if you battle and you fight for yourself, you may not go the mile, but you'll go the mile when you're fighting for everybody else. So maybe that's what made everything so achievable because I wanted to do it for them, you know, make them proud, you know, so. Yeah, we haven't really even talked that much about your parents yet. I'm just curious to know how often they did they watch your shows? Do they know how to pick you out when they were watching anything that you were in? Oh my gosh, yeah. There's this like I, I remember I did uh my dad, I remember I flew to Florida to do a Diana Shore show to do a world record motorcycle jump, and they put my dad on the talk show. And so my dad got to be on the show. And my mom, you know, she always called me her shining star, you know. And she meant that in in a beautiful way, not the star way. And uh, so I, I love my mom and my dad and my whole family and my wife. And so I've got great family values. And I think that is, is something that keeps you grounded to earth, you know? Um, but my mom, yeah, I always, uh, my mom passed away many years ago, but I always feel it with me and I always trying to make her proud and, and do amazing things. But yeah, she, I, when I first started breaking into business before my career really exploded, I would send her pictures and she have it in the courier news in New Jersey. You know, Dennis is a star, you know, and all I did was get shot in a show for two seconds. And so she was just proud and always promoting me and 
put me in the newspaper and and telling everyone I'm on TV tonight, Channel Eight, you know. Uh, so I uh, Channel Seven and Eight o'clock, and so yeah, it's pretty cool. So uh, I want to ask about all the different aliens that you played because you did so many. But uh, before then, I want to ask about the different times you've had to wear a Starfleet uniform because on this show, we've talked to a lot of actors who have had differing opinions on how the uniform feels. And I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on it because not only are you wearing it to perform, you're wearing it to take punches, get shot, take falls, do whatever stunt you're going to do in that day. So uh, tell us about wearing that uniform and whether or not it was stifling to you or if you had no problem with it whatsoever. Starfleet uniforms are cozy. Because you got to remember, I used to wear Jehemadar, you know, Jemadar uniforms. Man, they were like 30 pounds of rubber and a rubber head. And and they're like a West suit. And we'd go out at 118 degrees in a rock quarry to do a battle scene. And we would, it'd be 140 in the suit. I mean, it was like, so whenever we wore a Starfleet uniform, it was like a gift. It was like, oh, wow, this is a pair of pajamas. This is cozy. Uh but I remember uh, playing so many Starfleets, uh, mainly on probably a lot on T- TNG and and a little bit on Voyage. But on D Space Nine, I was playing so many Starfleets. I was putting a blonde hair wig and a and a red wig and a uh, uh, a brown wig. Uh, just and I remember um, our executive producer Ira Bear coming up to me. And said, "Oh man, that was great. That was great. I, I had a, a, I don't know, black wig on. That that was great. And then suddenly, um, I'm wearing a blonde wig, and I'm playing a different Starfleet. And he walked on the set, and I'm waiting for them to say, Dennis, you're being recognized. You're playing Starfleets everywhere, getting killed.' He walked on a set, and I just played a, a brown hair Starfleet guy that got killed on the other episode. And he sees me with a blonde wig. He goes, don't tell me.'" Your cousin? I said, that's right. I'm the cousin of the guy with the run. And he just laughed and giggled. But they never told me, stop playing Starfleet because the fans may recognize you. They they trusted me to do the right thing and hide as much as possible and keep you. But when you're Klingons and all that, you could do all you want. But as Starfleets, I probably used up as much as possible getting on film and playing all these crazy guys. Yeah, you mentioned that you were a Jem'Hadar. You've also been a Klingon. You've been a Cardassian. You've been a Borg, a Breen, a Bajoran, a Ferengi, a Kazon. I'm going to stop because we'll be here all day if I don't. Um, but for you, which was the most difficult alien to play and most difficult to do stunts in? Um, I'd say the Jem'Hadar because we had the episode uh, where we had to go in that rock quarry. And I purposely wore the suit uh, and then headpiece i knew it was going to be hot it was so hot it was world it was the hottest it ever was in california in history we were in a rock quarry and we're wearing the jehemadar and so i'm so glad that i did it we had to do it for two days because wearing it i mean dry i was driving to work at 3 30 in the morning it was already 98 degrees 3.30 in the morning. So I knew it was going to be a tough day. I knew that I needed to protect my people, all my stunt guys. Um, I remember having um, Mitchell Danton, Ray Danton's son. He, he's a stuntman. He was wearing it. So <clears throat> I'm glad I, I wore it. And, uh, and because when we stepped out of our trailers at 7 a.m. and we're all dressed up, you could see the rubbery flames going past our eyes. It was so hot. 
it was already 115, 115 degrees, but the suit was already melting and the, and the headpiece. So I remember walking out to the set and I told the director, I said, listen, anyone wearing this, you need to keep us in the rooms in air condition. And when you're two minutes away from shooting, we'll run out, we'll rehearse and we'll get shot. So they did that for us because we, we couldn't last more than five minutes out there because even the crew, crew were wearing, you know, tank tops and shorts and they were going down. They were overheated, exhausted. It was just crazy weather. So, and so I remember running, they're going to shoot us now. And so I remember getting all my guys and I said, you guys feel good because if I'm not feeling good, I know they're not. And I'm feeling nauseous too. So I figured let's go do it. And they blasted us and they got us back in the room in time before we got too sick. And I remember we wrapped and the next day I brought back all new stunt people because I knew that my, that those guys couldn't take it. And I, I didn't, I wore the suit again. I remember the medic on the second day came up to me. The medic didn't know who I was. He just thought I was one of the stunt Jehemadars. And the medic looked at me and looked at my eyes and I was ready to go down. I didn't tell him, but I was ready to go down. And um, he looked at me and goes, you're done. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap you right now. So we're going to get the suit out of you. And he goes, what's your name? And I gave him a false name. I go, Kenny Lesko, my other stunt guy that worked yesterday. <laughs> and so he's going to the 80. We need to wrap Kenny Lesko. And there is no Kenny Lesko. So by the time they figured it out, we got, to do our shot and but we were all pretty nauseous and that was the toughest the rubber suit the rubber boots the rubber head it was a lot and i remember um when we wrapped that night i felt so good that we were able to accomplish that it was so almost impossible for for us to me and the stunt guys make it through those days <clears throat> and i remember our producer ira bear brought in a dairy truck of ice cream when we wrapped on the second day dairy truck banana splits it was like seven o'clock at night it was still 100 degrees banana splits i mean i'm watching all this but i couldn't do it because we we just were so nauseous but it was great to look at it and if i felt good buddy i'd be man but he did that for the crew a dairy cream truck with real soft ice cream so i'll never forget that I remember all the other days on the sets, the smoke and the Jehemadar and the smoke sets, it made it tough. They were tough days because the suit was so hot and they cracked the set full of mist, smoke. And uh, But I remember every time we finished the, those tough days, I was so proud. So now, in the, now that I'm here I am in the future, when I'm on a set and I'm wearing normal clothes, doing stunts, and there's no smoke, I'm going like, and maybe it's 100 degrees outside, I'm going like, Buddy, this is like, this is a beautiful day. So from all the hard days, you know, it made all these days look so simple, you know? And it's funny that you mentioned uh, being the Jemadar and talking about those scenes you did in the quarry, because we've talked to a few different people who have been part of those as well, who have been part of those episodes. Uh, and in fact, our very first guest in the show was Caitlin Hopkins. She was in an episode called The Ship. I, I don't know if you remember this one. But it was different because there was a giant ship outside. Maybe you remember that because of that. And yeah. she actually talked about how there was a stunt person right next to her in a scene who literally, as they were doing the scene, just passed right out in the middle of it. I, I don't know yeah. if you recall that at all happening, but it sounds like I think yeah. that happened quite a lot. Yeah, that was that was the episode where we all were getting nauseous and and uh, and we barely made it, you know. Uh, <clears throat> and I remember what I we did behind cameras and we did without makeup knowing. We slid ahead on top. We 
took a knife and we slid an opening on top where cameras couldn't see about a six inch gap. And we took water bottles and we unscrewed them and we put them on top of the hole and we put it in our heads and we would do this, go gloop, gloop, gloop. And the water would go gloop, gloop, and would fill in and just cool us down. If we didn't do that over the two days, um, we wouldn't have made it. And it made a mess on the interior of everybody. It saved us. It really did this cold ice water going down in our head and down our necks. And so I came up with that idea. It probably ruined the the headpiece, but it's it saved our lives probably because it was so hot. Um, so, uh, but that was the episode. That was the one that, uh, that, that was probably the toughest one to make it through, you know, with, uh, and getting everybody home. So across all of the different Trek shows you've been on, which is to say a lot of folks here, uh, which actors were most insistent on doing their own stunts and which ones were like, now nah, I'm good. You can go ahead and take it for me. Well, the one thing I, they all were handy. I remember when, um, Patrick Stewart, we had a bit of a cool fight scene to do with him, maybe around season three. And he was handy. And he threw kind of a John Wayne punch, you know? So I had to tweak that into making it a little, a little more, you know, futuristic. Uh, but when the more and more I watched it, it really fit his, his character. And so I kind of let it be what it was and decided not to tweak it so much. Uh, and I remember with uh, Michael Dorn, when we were doing his first fight scene, um, I remember making a, I liked a, uh, like a paw, like a dragon, futuristic karate. And that became the Klingon, <laughs> you know, and that became almost famous. We, we, we end up using it everywhere because I watched it, looked at it. I go, man, that looks Klingon, Klingonish, And I'm going to keep using that and all our, you know, that and the bat lifts and, and just keep, uh, so it was kind of like a mixture of all my battles uh, on Star Trek's have been more of a, a little bit of judo karate and, uh, you know, that type of thing. Uh, but I stayed away from Bruce Lee kicks. So if you notice all the shows, we probably had one kick, you know, that looked like a, you know, kick to the face. Because to me, that melt, that felt more, you know, Chuck Norris which is cool, but I wanted it not to have that feeling. And I, I, I was thinking more futuristic. So we, we went with whatever we end up doing, just more of that street fighting, Klingon, judo, a little bit of a karate style, you know? Yeah, it felt like a lot of the fight scenes with the Starfleet people in particular, it was meant to be very much a practical fighting system. So like I said, no Chuck Norris spinning roundhouse kicks. It was meant to be palm strikes, punches to the face, the body, whatever. Nothing, no drop kicks like you saw with Captain Kirk. Uh, how yeah. did you typically approach a fight scene with, let's say, a Starfleet person and any other alien race? Yeah, whenever there was a different alien race, I and there was going to be a battle, We they usually like to come up with different weapons. And um, there was going to be a, um, it was a, an episode of Deep Space Nine. We were on a planet where nobody uh, get, can get killed. They get killed, but they come back to life. And uh, it was called uh, Battle Lines. Tom, I went to Tom. I said, Tom, create me a weapon that where it's like, you know, where we can club a guy on the head and then use the other end and spear him. And so Tom put a softball on the end of a stick, you know, a, uh, and then on the other, he put a jagged, you know, wicked looking thing. And so Tom made a prototype and taped it and, 
and we made it and we looked at it and we go, man, this is cool. And we've never done that before, but we know that Dan Curry has come up with the bat lift. And so I figured, uh, let's go. So Tom made this thing and I brought it in the office and showed Dan Curry and the producers and I showed him how it would work. And, uh, it was for this episode and they loved it. And they processed made rubber ones and metal ones. I still got one in the, uh, one of the rare props that I, I have is the me- the metal prototype of this. So when you see that episode, you'll know that really Tom Moria created that. And um, But we were good at that when we were kids in the gym and doing fake fights. We would make fake rubber knives out of tape because we couldn't get a real – we didn't have money to get a real rubber. And so Tom would create all these fake safe weapons. And so it's kind of neat that uh, uh, he was creative that way. And it ended up paying off years later on the set. So now and then, uh, for all the different aliens, we'd come up with sometimes different weapons. I remember when Dan Curry created the bat lift. Uh, we were in a production meeting, and he's showing me this, and the producers and everybody in the meeting, this thing. And I'm saying to myself, this is not going to work. This bat lift doesn't look right. I mean, how am I going to? This is to myself. And I'm, you know, I would never say it out loud. I mean, uh, but it it doesn't look good, you know. So many awkward looking, and and uh, so the meeting's over, and Dan hands me the prototype, and I bring it to Tom Morgan. I'm going, and we're feeling it, and I'm going, you know, we could do this, reverse it, and block, and we could, you know, <clears throat> because Dan, Dan Curry wanted to do judo moves, and it was it was he created that uh for that and my battles are more not very elegant mine are you know cavemen attack and battle that brutal uh and not the dance uh, but the weapon he made he visualized it being something that wharf could uh meditate with and do guru and and you know but i had to use it for battles and suddenly i started playing with it and i'm going wow and suddenly we're, it's turning into a battle weapon that I, I love this bat lift. So what you see sometimes is deceiving because it threw me off. I didn't think it would, I thought it would be awkward. It ended up being unbelievable. I love the bat lift. And I tell that story all the time, Dan. I tell Dan that I never liked it when I first saw it, but it was amazing. And Dan always came up with great ideas of stunts too for us to make even more work for us because he was so creative which I'm in touch with Dan all the time. He's another amazing soul, a great creator. And uh, uh, he's, he's a super family man, you know. So now and then, uh, different aliens, we'd come up with some different moves. But I always like to stick with what we have and kind of tweak it a little bit so it looks like uh, it's a different alien making a kind of a different move. I always stuck with, you know, back flips. And I remember one day I was doing a battle on D Space Nine with um, Nana Visitor. And she was really handy. They all were handy. But my gosh, uh, Avery Brooks, he was flawless. He loved doing his own fights. He was so handy. Uh, John Bennett doubled him a lot. But when it came to doing the close-ups, uh, uh, Avery Brooks, man, he was a machine. That guy just, his acting, because if you're not acting with the fight, it don't look right. But, you know, they're all such good actors. They make it so believable on all the fight scenes. But we were doing a, a battle and I showed Nana Visitor how to do a boom, boom, boom and turn. And she gets down in the, like a big fight scene that lasts 
50 seconds with four different people. And man, she nailed it. She was like a stunt girl. And she had amazing girls that would double her. But when she did her own pieces, she was, you know, one of the best. She was like a machine and she got a high off it. Like when Johnny Carson got blown off, when, you know, he was high and happy. When she was done with the battle, she was excited that she just killed four, you know, Jehemadar Klingons. So uh, that's pretty cool. So one of the things that uh, I know people like hearing about it, as horrible as it might be to recall, but um, stunt injuries, things that happen on set that don't go correct the way they're supposed to go. Uh, what was the worst injury you ever received while working on Star Trek? You know, we, we've been really blessed uh, in really my whole career. But on Star Trek, I mean, gosh, we, we did, I coordinated 389 episodes, which is insane. You know, I went there for one day and oh, by the way, you're going to be here for 14 years and do 389 episodes. So that's one thing I learned that any one day uh, could be a friend that you make for life or could turn into an amazing career. So any one day, uh, so if you have to go to that day and work for free, uh, amazing things can happen. So you go there. And so that one day turned into 14 years and 389 episodes. Uh, I think we had a one one actor punched another actor uh, in the nose, but luckily he was okay. But, uh, and you're talking about having, you know, a thousand fight scenes. I had once that man cut his finger, you know, on the stairs that he fell in there. Uh, so we've really been blessed, you know, uh, to be able to do all those fights and all those battles with all those weapons and, uh, and really walk away with, a, with an amazing safety record, you know, keep getting everybody home. Number one is just get, and that's the one thing I always want to do is when you coordinate a show on Star Treks or features or anywhere is, is do cool stuff. But the important goal is get everybody home when we wrap. And that's all I care about is getting, doing, getting everyone home and, 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 you know, doing some cool stuff, you know? Well, the reason I ask is because I remember hearing about a story about Marina Sirtis uh, and she did an episode called Power Play uh, where the story is she took a fall wrong and hurt herself. Do you remember that day? Um, I do remember that day 100%. Um, we had a stunt double that got shot to the floor on stage 16. And she sold out and did great. And then she wanted to do a close-up, um, our actress, which we always do. And so I had her land on a pad, a six-inch pad. But she really sold out. And she got a lot of air and she um, hit flat on her back. But still, it was on a pad. And I think she was surprised that it wasn't a big, soft, cozy um bed you know but even when you hit pads you can still feel the impact and i i remember her getting up and goes and her being uh more like wow that that isn't as easy as you know as it looks because our stunt people they make maybe we make things look fun and easy because we afterwards they print we all hey but i remember her doing that and it, i think she probably you know, maybe knocked the wind out of her a little bit or surprised her. But uh, she still did a lot of stuff in the future. But uh, maybe she talked about it and it maybe got to be more of a big story. But no, she was fine. She was and she she was handy. All the actors were handy and they really all love doing their own little bits and pieces, you know. So for yourself personally, what was the most intense stunt you ever did on a Star Trek show? Um. I think one of the coolest ones 
was in the beginning, season one. And it was uh, Heart of Glory, um, where it was toward the end of the episode <clears throat> and the Klingons shot two security guards. Uh, and then one Klingon <clears throat> went to the, um, into the ship and did the, got shot by Worf and fell through the engine room through one floor down through another and hit the bottom floor. And uh, Rob Bowman was directing that one. And so I got to play the Starfleet guy at noon that got shot, you know, and ate the ground. And then they put me into makeup. And then that night at 11 p.m., I doubled the Klingon getting shot and fell through the floor and through the like two floors to, and bottomed out. And that gag, uh, just to do those two stunts in the same day, Starfleet and be a Klingon, was impossible. And yet I was the coordinator and the performer. So when you really look at that, that's pretty iconic that I was able to play a normal human and then the same day. So that never happened again. But to do that particular stunt was really tricky. To be able to fall through breakaway glass, head and chest first, and go all the way down and not, you know, and not get hurt. Because it was on the border. I wouldn't ask my people to do it. But it was on the border of what I thought we could do. And uh, so that was pretty cool. I just saw that episode and I recorded that particular moment because it was, uh, it was uh, I remember coming, I had a little pad down be below, like six inches. But I remember all the breakaway glass. I landed so flat and ate it that the glass I was pulling out of my face, it was because I had to land on everything. <clears throat> and and the, and I remember pieces uh, stuck into my side. I had like scratches and stuff, but that was part of the game. And I just remember going, wow, man, that was, I almost tweaked my back because I really came down and never twisted and just ate it. And uh, so I was pretty proud of that. And I think um, I was already on the show, but I think that helped, you know, you know, me with my amazing run that I had for 14 years over there with all, you know, one thing about Star Trek is <clears throat> the journey on the show, it, it was so much fun, but it was really after the show uh, to uh, be able to know that you have many friends out there. And when you bump into them, like I just bumped into Nana last year at the M Emmy Awards. Uh, no, it was at uh, a, uh, a screening of the D Space Nine what we leave behind that Ira Bear put together. I saw her there and I probably haven't seen her for gosh, uh, 15 years. And so when you see somebody and you haven't seen them for 15 years and you see how happy they are to see you and they see how happy you are to see them. That was pretty cool. And I think that's it is that we had so much excitement together. So only you see them 10 or 15 years later and they're as happy as if it was, you know, you were brother and sister. And so, and, and that's how it was that day at that screening, seeing the everybody, Ira Bear, and just seeing everyone for the first time in all those years, all the actors. And, and uh, so that's the thing that is cool is that you really fall in love with the people you work with, uh, with a deep friendship that is always there. And suddenly it rekindles when you see them years later, or maybe, talk to him on the phone so and that's the journey you know and that's you too uh everyone you get to see and meet i mean they're 
it's it's an amazing journey and and hopefully you keep that friendship going throughout your life. I can say for myself, it's still very surreal that I'm doing this podcast and I get to talk to so many people like yourself included and talk about Trek and just the business in general. So, uh, you know, just as an aside, just again, thank you for being here with us today. Um, but I do have one more Trek question for you before we yes. head into some other subjects here. Uh, and there's one stuff I want to talk about, which is from Deep Space Nine. I think it's from uh, If Wishes Were Horses, or I, I can't remember the exact name, but the episode is where you get set on fire. And for folks watching uh, the video version of this podcast, oh. you'll see a picture. And uh, was that, is that actually from the DS9 episode? Yeah, you see it? That's uh, that's me on fire on that episode. Please tell us about that because you know I, I don't don't get to talk to enough stunt people on this show here, and uh, you know I never get to hear about what it's like to be set on fire. So uh, what can you tell us about doing a stunt like that? That fire gap was amazing because it's the first time we really did fire on the show, and so I brought in my my great buddy Tim Torella, who is amazing with fire, a uh, great stunt coordinator, great friend, and so. One thing when you're dealing with fire, if you make a mistake, you're burnt for life. So you can't mess with fire. So I always have Tim and, they, you know, they we, we took our Starfleet uniform and we soaked it in a uh, fireproof solution. And he, he comes on with his magical gel to put, you know, if I have skin shown to put gel on that so my hands don't get burnt. I remember putting a fake Starfleet face on. And uh, and then uh, I didn't do an air tank. Normally you do an air tank and just breathe and you have an air. I decided just to be in a hose, which is a hose running out of your suit. And then right before they light me, I'll and I'll get rid of the hose. They'll tuck in the headpiece and they light me. And but I remember doing that gag. I remember I could barely see. And I had to hold my breath and run down the hallway and be on fire. And uh that was pretty cool. That was just doing a full burn on Star Trek. You normally don't get to do 100-foot high falls or car chases, right? And you don't really get to do fire gags. So it was pretty cool to pull off a full burn and and uh, and do that. So that was, uh, that was a cool moment for me. I like how for you it's cool. For me watching at home, I'm like, how is that man not dead? But, yeah, it's still amazing either way. <laughs> yeah, nowadays if we were doing that on Star Trek, uh, they would it would be CGI, right? Probably, yeah. I mean, uh, or maybe just a little fire, then they do. So it's it's great to do uh, on Grace American Hero and all the Star Treks. There was not a lot of CGI other than creatures. So it was great to do things practical, especially the Grace American, American Hero. <clears throat> it was great to do really fly on cables or really air ram into trees. I was, I mean, everything was real. There was no CGI. <clears throat> And I remember seeing some movie come out about 10 years ago, and it was a guy that was flying, crashing into stuff. I'm going like, it was all CGI. And it was cool. And I said, if we ever did a feature film, Grace American Hero, we would do CGI, but I would give them real practical crashes that people could really feel at home. And no, that was real. That's not CGI. So as somebody who's been in this stunt industry for as long as you've been in and as prolific as you've been in, what is something that you wish you knew when you were starting out that you would tell a stunt person today who's just beginning in the industry? If we all could know what we, you know, now what we know that we, we didn't know then, uh, it wouldn't be about the business um, because I would have done the same thing. And I always been telling people the same thing that um, so I wouldn't have done anything different in this business. I would I've done the same thing, uh, which is passionately love what you're doing. And 
don't ever think of the money because I never knew you could even make money. And when I got my first check, I'm like, holy moly, I could, I could pay my rent. This is crazy. I can eat two meals a day instead of one. I didn't know. And so uh, the passion and the drive and, and humble, um, just keep being that person in this business. And uh, that's why I tell all the, I, I remember for years, uh, new stunt people would call me and I'd tell them the same thing. They would say, oh man, I could use some work. Uh, I, got, I haven't paid my rent. And I go, oh man, you guys are lucky. And they go, what? I go, these are the best days of your life. You don't have rent money. You don't have food money. I mean, so when you finally do pay your rent and you do eat, it tastes good and it feels good. Those hunger days are who you need to be all the time. Always be hungry and passionate. And um, and I'm still that way today. I love being on a set and I, I love I won't eat all day. And then I haven't eaten today yet because I love being hungry physically and mentally. Because when you finally do eat, it tastes good. And I'm not some king up there that eats 24 hours a day. He can't taste the food. He's just eating and eating and throwing up and eating. It's good to be hungry in life. And it's good to be humble. And uh, those things uh, go a long way. So now we're doing this interview at the tail end of 2020. The COVID pandemic is still quite a big thing across the country and around the world. I'm curious now, how has COVID or how do you think COVID will affect the stunt industry moving forward in Hollywood? That's a good question. I was ready to prep a uh, movie about three months ago. In fact, I was prepping it. And um, there was a big fight scene where actors, well, uh, two actors would grab each other and roll on the floor and then get up and fall over a desk and knock the computer and back on the floor. And um, and what happened was uh, I said, we need doubles for that. And the producer said, that's great because we, we there's no way we could do this with actors with the COVID thing. And uh, But in a way, there's no way you, back then you could safely do it with some people, right? Hugging and breathing on each other. But now everything is so safe. Uh, they're making things safe. The things are shooting now. Um, uh, I'm sure next year it's going to bust open. But they're making it safe. They're testing actors and stunt people three times a week on a set. Um, the crew's being tested. There's areas. Everyone has to wear a medical mask, gloves. So there's ways of, you know, continuing doing the, the movie industry and and just be extra, extra safe. And there's going to be a time where two stunt people can't wear the mask and they have to fight and choke each other and do all the fake stuff. But uh, they're going to be tested that to make sure that they're good to do it. And uh, and that's what you have to do is just keep the testing going and until this virus goes away, you know, keep everybody safe. Yeah, we were talking off air before the show began about just, you know, what's going on in the world right now and people wearing masks. And for folks who are watching and listening today, you know, just a reminder, if you find it tough to wear a mask for 20 minutes, if you go shopping, just remember that Dennis wore a Jem Hadar uniform in the sweltering hot California sun for two straight days. So just remember that when you're worried about a mask. You no, know, it's weird because uh, when I'm, I was prepping two movies, one three months ago, and one two weeks ago, <clears throat> and they both had a push till next year because the um, protocols. Um, and um, I already bought like two um, masks to wear uh one is a notre dame mask that they wear it's like a neck collar and one is a 
uh, LA Dodger mask. I like them. The real mask, I feel uncomfortable. So I, I bought these. So when I do go back to the set, they feel more athletic because they're sport. And, uh, and I feel more me as a stunt coordinator than wearing a medical mask. There's something really uncomfortable about that. So uh, having the jock mask feels a lot better I, because that's what I am. I'm more of a jock stunt coordinator. than. So uh, I look forward to, in fact, uh, I was just getting a call while I was in the Zoom and one is to get on the set next week. So it will be my first time on the set wearing a mask and all that. And uh, so I look forward to, you know, breaking the ice and get rolling again and and seeing what they really, really do on the set, seeing how safe they are. Yeah, I hope all the best for you when you get to that set and hope everything yep. is safe and all the precautions are taken. So, Dennis, one other thing i got to talk to you about today, because it's the thing I think maybe folks might know you best for, surprisingly. Uh, and that's when you made a music video called America, We Stand as One. This thing went viral before I feel like going viral was even a thing. Uh, so tell us a little bit about America, We Stand as One. Gosh, the song America We Stand as One, it was uh, 9-11 happened. Uh, it was devastating. <clears throat> Three days later, I was still just so devastated. I picked up my guitar. I sat here in this room right here. I sat on the floor and there was my German shepherd. Her name is Puppy Junior, Honey, Honey. I started playing this song um, that I was writing during that summer. And suddenly that song turned into America, We Stand As One. All these words and lyrics came in, tweaked and changed everything. And this it's just ripping out of me and tears are falling down my cheek. And my German shepherd, Honey, is, is howling in the air. And my wife come, came out of the shower with a towel on her. She's crying because she heard something. And that's never happened before. And uh, this message that came out of nowhere. Every word that came out at that moment, I wrote down and recorded within an hour, called my friend Stephen Pisani, uh, just a great super friend and singer. And he <clears throat> recorded it on my acoustic, every word that came out um, at that moment. And <clears throat> I sent it to um, a couple big music producers, um, Bob Kulik, and um, Billy Sherwood. And <clears throat> I sent them the demo and they called me like within 10 minutes of them hearing it. And they said, we need to record this. And I remember two days later, I'm gonna record this song now, this song that I know the world needed to hear because of, it gave so much hope that our loved ones are still with us. Uh, but I needed to record this song because it had so much meaning and hope for the world at the time that the message that our loves and our loved ones are still with us in, in a different way. <clears throat> so I remember two days later, I'm going to record it with Bob Kulik and Billy Sherwood. And I never recorded the song before. I remember going out that night to record it and stepping in front of my house and looking up into the sky by myself and saying, gosh, I hope I'm brave enough to do this and to enter this world because I know the world needs to hear the song, but I know how much it's going to take, how much passion, like, like it was to be a stuntman. I know I have to give it so much, and I know the work ahead of me is going to be challenging. So I prayed for the courage to actually go in my car and go to that studio and enter that music world. <clears throat> and we did. 
and walked in there and I laid down the track and and everything and <clears throat> it was something special. These guys had platinum albums hanging everywhere and yet I'm in this different world with the song that, that needed to be heard. And they heard that this had some magic in it that gave people hope. <clears throat> so we recorded it and we got it on a single and <clears throat> we started getting it out and it was going to colleges and they're playing it. And the word was good that people are hearing a song and uh, everything was, I was paying for everything. I didn't want any money back. It was just, I need to get the song out there. And I remember um, that out of nowhere, uh, I started getting visions of the video and I hooked up with Dan Curry and my storyboard artist um, from high school. And, uh, and we got together and started storyboarding my visions of flags and children in the ocean and the waves and a, a kids at a schoolyard and um, rocks in the ocean and just that. And, and we started jotting it in my artist the next day, <clears throat> Kevin Farrell is his name. We went to high school together and he did all the stuff for free. <clears throat> and he showed me all the storyboards of where the words are and all these visuals. And I said, man, we're, we need to shoot this and let out a video. And then we started going to schools and shooting the visions I was feeling and rocks in the ocean and walking. And, and then I got Rob Bowman to direct the video. And he was in the middle of doing features and he took a time out to, you know, uh, to come aboard with the same passion to get this message, this video out. And long story short, we done with the video. I entered the video on the, uh, on my internet, America, we stand as one. And within 48 hours, my video and the internet crashed and they couldn't take the hits and they were going everywhere, this video and it became viral. And I was getting phone calls around the world. And uh, we had a, put more gigawatts on the internet my whoever was hosting me my 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 amazing people that are hosting me uh uh mike the master uh and and sean and they were uh gave me all these gigawatts and <clears throat> suddenly i could take thousands of hits and it just became if it came out now it'd be a massive internet hit but back then it was uh, it was the most downloaded music video in the world for three years. And so uh, it was beautiful and uh, it was beautiful, but it's also there was always a few people that didn't like you for making something so beautiful. So they did different versions of my video and made it evil, you know, and so that bothered me. But I knew that, you know, you have to look at the good and don't look at the few people. And, and just keep getting the song out there. So I'm still mailing out the videos and still uh, all the money that we raised, 100% of all the money went to amazing charities, fire, fire stations and children with autism and just amazing places. So still today, I, I have whatever money we get, we, we send to the charities. So uh, it's been an amazing ride and the song is still being played out there. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I can hear it in your voice too. It sounds like you're still very emotional about what you did and, and this piece that you made. Yeah, it was <clears throat> it was emotional because it was uh, <clears throat> it was so heartfelt to know that all all the loved ones and that have passed away and our heroes. It hurt so much, but it was beautiful to get so many thousands of emails and be able to 
mail out the song and passionately pay for everything with not ever thinking about money, just knowing that somebody is going to feel good because they feel that this is their loved one, not just on 9-11, but this was a loved one 20 years ago before 9-11 that passed away and a loved one that passed away two weeks ago. They, they feel this message um, because of 9-11 that launched this song. It is emotional to still think about it, still think about I'm still sending it out there. You know, I, I, I love doing it. So um, I love giving it out as a gift. And most people are shocked that it's free. And but it is. I can't wait to mail out more whenever I get emails. So have you worked on a song for 2020? Because I feel like this is a year we could use another Dennis Madalone single. Yeah, no, I haven't thought of a song. Gosh, I got so many beautiful songs that I haven't recorded. I got like so many of them, and but I haven't thought of that. I, I just know that uh, this is a time we all need to come together. And, and you know, <clears throat> mankind is in charge of this virus. Mankind is in charge, and we need to, you know, try to come together and do the right thing and, and be as safe as possible and pray that this virus dies off or we get a cure. So, but uh, yeah, we'll have to pick up the guitar and. Uh, Start writing some songs, that's for sure. Dennis, you know, last question today. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Gosh, I guess when I was a little kid watching Captain Kurt, you know, and Spock and all those fight scenes and suddenly really being part of it. And being a kid in New Jersey, not really knowing anything other than, wow, that's cool. They're beating up these monsters and these these big monsters that are in these big fake Halloween costumes. Because back then they weren't so... They're big. You could tell it was someone's wearing a mask, um, but it was feasible back then. We believed it. Um, but I remember being watching it as a kid, and now suddenly to be part of, you know, that, you know, to uh, be part of the Trek history is is amazing, and to get all my friends to be part of it, and all of us to be part of it, it's pretty cool to be in that. And anyone that's a fan is part of it. And mainly the fans. I think they're amazing. Uh, and I love giving them goodies because I used to have about 400 scripts from the set. Now I'm down to 100. I've given them out to the fans. People reach out to me, find me. I sign a script. I give it to them. You know, and sometimes they auction it off for charity. And mostly they just can't believe I'm giving them a script from 20 years ago, a real script that I bent the pages and wrote in. And so I love doing that. So if there's any fans out there that want some scripts, I'm, I'm always sending them out as a gift. So I love sharing the real experience of stuff on a set so they can feel that. So Dennis, thank you so much today for chatting with us and for telling us about the many, many years, the decades you've had in the stunt industry uh, and just all the insight and knowledge you've got for not only Star Trek, of course, but everything else you've been a part of. So thank you to you. Thank you to the team you've worked with for all the Star Trek shows. Uh, you know, it means a lot to have a stunt performer here talking with us and really educating our listeners about what you guys do. You guys are truly invisible warriors out there that don't get the appreciation you all truly deserve and have earned. So thank you again for being part of the show and for what you've done and all your contributions in Star Trek. Hey, from me and all the crazy stunt guys, uh, it's been an honor being on all the Trek TV shows, having fun. And I'm glad you're keeping the, all the ships flying in the air and, and uh, everybody, we're, we're all on the same ship. So let's stay together and be humble and, and make some friends out there. All right. Thank you so much, Dennis. All right, buddy.
That was our chat with Dennis Madalone, a great role model for anyone interested in becoming a stunt performer, and of course, an excellent storyteller as well. And as a fun side note, if you ever take a good look at the Star Trek Voyager episode Projections, there's a moment when the crew manifest is being looked over, and if you pay real close attention, you might just notice that Dennis Madalone is listed as a Starfleet officer. So how about that? It wasn't unusual for Dennis to play a Starfleet officer or a Bajoran trooper in any given episode of Star Trek. Usually a no-no for a stunt performer, since you don't want to have your face burned on screen, as they say. But clearly, some exceptions were made for Dennis and his many, many cousins, but there is one particular performance of his that's worth noting. One of Dennis's recurring characters as a stunt performer was a character listed as Terran Marauder on Memory Alpha. You could see this character pop up in several of the DS9 Mirror Universe episodes, as this rebel was part of Mirror Benjamin Sisko's terrorist cell, and appeared in Crossover, Through the Looking Glass, Shattered Mirror, and The Emperor's New Cloak. He seemingly survived the entire story arc, so hopefully that Marauder one day found peace as the universe came to a nice, wonderful, happy ending, or at the very least, put his knife skills to some better uses. Delta Quadrant Sushi Chef, perhaps? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And if you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast when available, make sure to check out youtube.com slash nerdnews today. And don't forget, you can also check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. Check out all the Trek Untold merchandise we have, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Trek Untold. Any contribution you can make helps keep this ship running at optimum power. But even just listening to the show and telling your friends about it does a pretty big thing for us too. So please leave a rating and review if you're listening to this in the audio form, or give the video on YouTube a thumbs up and sub to the channel. There's no wrong way to help Trek Untold out, so whether you're just dropping a review, giving us ratings, or if you're able to offer us any support monetarily, we thank you so much for doing that, and we also thank you for again choosing to listen to Trek Untold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked as a guest on this show, or provide a sponsorship opportunity to Trek Untold, please email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on what you thought about this week's episode and our guest. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, this has been Trek Untold, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.